Welcome, everyone, to episode 229 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're discussing Consequences, or the latest film in the most iconic, monosyllabic action franchise of our generation, John Wick Chapter 4. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? Yeah. Uh, I, I was practicing for that one all day. I don't know. How, yeah, how I, sh- I should have asked you, are you good? So you could, I should have set you up better for that. Yeah. Uh, I'm good, Scott. I am good. I actually had a chill weekend for once. I uh, was was here in Charlotte. It feels like it was the first time in a while that that was the case. Well, <laughs> I say that. I was going to say, my, I, saw, my... I saw some Instagram stories to the contrary. I don't know what you're talking about. This is my definition of a chill weekend is that I only, you know, do one major event that, you know, involves me only traveling like an hour and a half away. But I did, I was not planning to do this, but Friday afternoon while I was at work, I just, uh, I, I honestly, I th- thought that the the concert had already happened. Um, but I saw somebody post that they were going and I looked and Bruce Springsteen uh, was playing and the E Street Band were playing Saturday Night in Greensboro. I had looked when the tickets originally went on sale um, and they were way too expensive. So I was just like, uh, well, forget about this. And like I said, I, already, I thought that the, the concert had already happened, um, but went and checked the tickets the day before. They were reasonable enough. I actually tried to get my dad to drive six hours over from uh, Chattanooga because his birthday was on Friday. Um, and obviously your birthday was on, on Saturday. Happy birthday to you, Scott. Thank um, you. It's a great time to have a birthday. Yeah, but I couldn't convince my dad um, in his now even more advanced age um, to (laughs) drive over and do that six hours or whatever. But so I went by myself and uh, yeah, you know, Bruce Springsteen, he's actually he's pretty good. I know not enough people talk about, you know, that maybe he's one of the best live performer. I'm kidding, obviously. But um, yeah, Yeah, he's he's terrible, right? Yeah. Amazing. The energy that that guy has for 72 years old and um he really does play like every note like might be his last and it's pretty hard to beat like his closing closing salvo of like he he just basically played like his seven biggest hits back to back to back to back to end the show and uh turned on all the lights in the arena everyone was just going bruce the whole time it was uh something that every music lover i feel like should do before they die or before he dies Depending on how old you are, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which one happens first? Yeah. Sure. I mean, seems like at the rate he's going, he's going to die on stage mid performance in like 30 years, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, not, not anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, look, he's flush with half a billion dollars from selling his music catalog, like the his like a uh, digital masters or whatever. So yeah. he's just doing it because he's, he's having a good time out there, I guess. I don't know. He doesn't need the money anymore. And you can you can see that in every frame of the show. Like that's one of the things I loved is that even you know God knows how many shows he's played at this point. He's in Greensboro, North Carolina. You know, probably not the most interesting city for him to go to, and he still is like he's having the time of his life up there. So because he also had like he had a Broadway he theater, did, yeah. like I guess what do they call it? Like um, a residency. residency. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he's played a lot of concerts to say the least. And I know. Uh, I mean friend from from high school a mentor from high school i don't know what the right word is jeff kurtzman i feel like he always talked about how he'd seen him in concert like a hundred times or something like yeah, that there he's definitely one that people will just like follow him around he plays so many shows and pretty accessible in terms of how like you know at least the chattanooga like you can go to atlanta you can go to nashville you can go to Knoxville. Yeah. there's like tons of cities nearby that you can go to and watch him if you want to 
rattle off, you know, four or five nights on one of his tours. And it's not like he's, you know, he's not Taylor Swift with who's pretty, uh, I guess, narrow on the number of dates she offers on her tours. Right, sometimes. it's only weekend shows. So. Exactly, yeah. So he's playing, you know, every night, it seems like, maybe five times a week or whatever. He's um, Yeah, he was really headed to D.C. After, after Greensboro. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, surprisingly not the topic of conversation for the rest of the pod today, Bruce Springsteen. Although, even though I'm not a music lover, I do like a good Bruce Springsteen song. But anyway, as I already mentioned, this week's review is the neo-noir actioner and fourth film in the John Wick franchise, aptly titled John Wick Chapter 4. Chad, Chad Stahelski returns to the director's chair and is partnering with his leading man, Keanu Reeves, in the biggest and longest film to date. Picking up shortly after the end of 2018's John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, Reeves' John Wick is hiding underground with Lawrence Fishburne's Bowery King, preparing to exact his revenge against the high table after his excommunicado status and Winston's, or Ian McShane's, attempt on his life. Wick travels to Morocco, kills the elder, or the one who sits above the high table, and the high table doesn't take that lying down. The high table dispatches the Marquis Vincent de Grammont, Bill Skarsgård, to dole out some consequences, starting with the New York Continental Hotel and its manager Winston, and his concierge Sharon, the late Lance Reddick. The consequences are severe, as Sharon is executed in front of Winston as a lesson and Winston's hotel is scheduled for complete demolition before his eyes. On another continent in Paris, de Grammont, with his high-table-provided unlimited resources, recruits a blind, retired, high-table assassin named Kane, played by Donnie Yen, to kill John, threatening to murder Kane's daughter if he refuses to carry out the hit. Meanwhile, John seeks refuge with another old friend, the head of the Osaka Continental Hotel in Japan, Koji, played by Hiroyuki Sanada. But trouble isn't far behind as de Grammont's men descend on the hotel with a deadly cane in tow. The preceding 170 minutes are as full to the brim with epic, operatic even, action as anyone could imagine and continuously tries to up the ante. Scott, I'll ask you this. Does Keanu's and Stahelski's attempts to up the ante with this franchise win them the jackpot or was John Wick Chapter 4 ultimately a bust? Yeah, so the thing with all these John Wick movies is that it, it, you, you're watching them and it seems like they are just trying to top the scene before it. Like, you know, it, 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 every scene is more spectacular than the one that came before it in, in a way, every set piece. Um, and I actually think you could say that about the franchise itself coming into this, uh, this movie, which is that every film as a whole was more spectacular than the last one. You know they're all good. Uh, the the first three films are all good, uh, but I kind of thought that they got better even as they went along. With you know Parabellum being my favorite uh, to date, and I gotta say, Scott, I think the trend continued because I think they one upped it again with John Wick Chapter Four. This movie, in many ways, feels like it. It seems crazy to say that this is like the culmination of everything that they've been working towards because. You know, again, you watch John Wick three, and you're like, "How can the how? Where can you go after this? Like, where can you go after that? Like knife fight scene and the horses mm -hmm. and the final battle between him and Mark Dacascos. Well, they found new places, Scott. Yeah. I don't know how they did it, but they did. Um, they and, found Germany and they found Paris. That's what they did. They found Paris. Yeah, we'll always yeah. have Paris. Um, the the action in this movie is, you know, top five 
of any movie I've ever seen. Like, just to, that's not even, I'm not even being hyperbolic. Like, there's really no way for me to deny that. Um, you know, maybe even top three, top two. Like, it is jaw-dropping, jaw-dropping. Like, from the be- from the beginning of the movie, really. Um, the choreography, it, it, it's combining, it feels like a, a bunch of different styles of, um, you know, action movies. But definitely, you know, the Hong Kong gun-fu of like john woo you have martial arts movies in there obviously you have donnie yen right who's you know uh, a martial arts movie um you know pro um and then you know you just have like good old-fashioned you know car chases and shootouts and you know stuff you would expect to see in american movies um and it just all comes together so beautifully um chad stahelski like yeah like you use the word operatic i think that's the perfect word like you it is you are literally watching a a a opera of action when you are watching this movie at the same time i think that this movie also has like the best story maybe of any of the the films or at least the most straightforward story i think you know one of the fair knocks you could have about the franchise is that it, it can get convoluted and you know the high table and the there's certainly a lot of and, lore the adjudicator yeah like all this backstory the harbinger in in this one clancy brown clancy brown yeah Yeah. he's doing yeah clancy brown is awesome his voice was like just it's so gravelly Um, yeah it works yeah but um this movie i feel like it is very clear i mean it's it's a it's pretty simple honestly when you boil it down to it to its essence i mean you know john wick at the end of the last movie like you said he he's been excommunicado He's on the run um, after Winston, mm-hmm. you know, shot him and he fell off the building and everything. Um, mm-hmm. And now he has to face a new enemy, which is Bill Skarsgård. And it's basically, you know, he, he's trying to win his freedom and not be excommunicado and not be hunted anymore. Um, and obviously, as as usual, everyone else, literally everyone else, it seems, is trying to kill him. Um, with the exception of like, you know, Winston and um, his few allies that are still out there. But, um, and it's just kind of a chase movie. It's kind of one long chase movie in a way. Um, Even when there's a little bit more plot, you know, he sets up this, he has to set up this duel eventually with Bill Skarsgård. We go, we get sent on a side quest at one point, like the the Risk Aroma are like, oh, you need to go do this thing before we can Mm -hmm. actually advance the main plot for you which is fine because that thing involves him fighting like Scott Adkins in a, in a fat suit um, looking like the penguin out of uh, the Batman. And it's pretty epic. And then you get to the final hour of the movie, which yeah, that's where like the chase movie real up. It is again, it is the, it boils it down to the simplest John wick is in one place. He needs to get to another place by a certain time and every single person between him and there is going to try to stop him from doing so. And it just gets more spectacular one after the other. And we'll talk about some of the specific set pieces, obviously, but there was like a 15 minute span where I was like about to stand, like just be out of my seat standing because of how uh, mind blowing it, it was what I was seeing. Um, the other thing I think is really strong about the movie is the side characters that get introduced. I mean, you mis- mentioned somebody as small as the Harbinger, who I think is great, but there are also a lot bigger characters. You know, Donnie Yen plays uh, Kane, who is, you know, 
a quote unquote villain here in the sense that he is trying to kill John. He's but, an antagonist at the very least, yes. if not a villain. It feels somewhat similar to like, you know, we were talking about with Jonathan Majors in Creed 3 a few weeks ago. Um, I think a similar type of like where he's really walking a tightrope, but walking the line of like, you know, he is he is opposed. He's an opposing force to our main character. But on some sense, you understand his reasons for doing what he is doing and you do empathize with him on some level. Um you have this new character of Mr. Nobody, played by Shamir Anderson, another really cool character. Maybe they could have done a little bit more with with him, but um, you know, great introduction into the world. It's kind of like the three of them butting heads through a lot of the movie, and they have a fun dynamic. You have you mentioned Hiroyuki Sonata, his daughter uh, Rina Sawayama. Like they're awesome. I'm I'm glad that he got a better part than he had bullet train last year um but um yeah it's just such a fun movie honestly i did not feel the runtime at all because i think it keeps moving forward it keeps you know one-upping itself like i said and even when john wick is not on screen like the movie absolutely holds your interest you know arguably again if i have one problem with the movie it's actually that the john stuff is probably the weakest you know part of the movie in terms of his character development, his character arc in this movie. Um, you know, the side characters are, are arguably more interesting for, you know, large portions of this movie. But at the end of the day, like, you're really just not going to be able to get enough of this action. And so um, it's hard for me to call anything, this movie, anything but a complete triumph, um, even if I may have some quibbles with the character development, like it is, it is an all time action movie. Like I feel comfortable with saying that after just one watch. Yeah. John Wick chapter four has the unusual position uh, in my mind as being a film that pretty much every fan of any, of like any sort of action film should a hundred percent go see. And you will enjoy it no matter what, probably if you're into that sort of action and, and the set pieces really are what can entertain you. But if you haven't seen the previous three movies, like you're going to have a hard time understanding what's going on in parts of the film. I feel like I, I think it makes the, the internal plots legible enough to follow, but the, the lore of, of the world of the continental of the high table of the risk aroma of X, Y, Z, you know, keep going and going and going and going there. I don't know if it's going to make a lot of sense, but when I was when I was making this point to friend of the pod, Jay, he was like, yeah, but like, does it really matter whether you understand any of that stuff? Like, is anyone coming for the plot? Uh, I think uh, the late Tom Sizemore put it well. You know, the, I think the action is the juice, the action is the juice in yeah. this film. Um, I, I did enjoy the plot in this as well, for the most part. I don't know if I'd go to say it's the strongest plot. I mean, probably the strongest plot is the first film. I mean, it's crazy that he's killing everyone because of a dog in a car, I guess. But it has the most like easy to follow plot of what's going on, I'd say. But one thing that I did really appreciate is that it sort of maps its plot with these set pieces. That's not like, I guess in a way that's not super innovative or or whatever, but I think it ultimately is really easy to follow what's going on for some of the reasons that you're describing, Scott. Like, you understand at the end of the film, he's been let out at the bottom of the hill and he kind of needs to go to the top of the hill like that. Like you understand yeah. what needs to happen at a very fundamental level. 
and you understand that there's this massive contract on his head. So, you know, just like in New York and John Wick chapter three and two, for that matter, everyone in the city apparently is an assassin trying to kill him. So it's pretty straightforward. If you see someone on the street, they're probably about to try to kill John and the plot. It just sort of goes. And I think I love that, when he. So I was gonna say, I love when he's in Paris, and he, again, he's trying to get from one place to the other. Bill Skarsgård has like this huge model of the city, like laid out, <laughs> and he's like tracking his progress along the way. I was like, it's so extra that he would even have that in the first place, but it's like, it's yeah. just hilarious. Makes you wonder, like, how much, how much money, like that particular set or production cost, mm-hmm. just to like make a make a model of the city like that for yeah. him to just look at it on, on a table. It's very funny. That that's just one example, though, because I think also earlier in the film it's very easy to map some of the set pieces as well. Like John Wick is in Osaka. There are hundreds of assassins descending on the building. He needs to escape the building. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. You know, there, at the end of the day, there, there might be interstitial periods where more plot, you know, quote unquote plot is happening. But I don't know if it's that difficult to follow to your point. And especially when you have action, this captivating and entertaining just at its purest basest level it's it's there's really not too much to complain about i guess is what i would say there are i definitely have some notes i think your note about john wick's you know personal character development is one you mentioned mr nobody being a really cool character i agree i can only assume that the 55 minutes they left on the cutting room floor of from the original cut which apparently was three hours and 45 minutes long there must have been more to this character in that cut because it feels like a lot of stuff was teased in his first scene in Osaka. He has this notebook. He has all these, these like sort of tiered number systems. Like he wants the contract to get to 50 million. It looks like, and it seems that way from what he was trying to negotiate with the marquee midway through the film, but we never understand why we don't even really know what happens to him at the end of the movie. He's just watching this duel happen off at the side at, at Sacre Core. Not really hundred percent sure why, um, so there's obviously there's something he's, really he's just vibing. He's, he's just vibing. Just yeah. And, and you know, maybe he's going to be in a future, like maybe a future, a future movie is going to have him in it. Like there's lots of options and directions they can go that aren't even involving necessarily John Wick himself with Keanu's character. We can get more into that later on, but between Mr. No, Mr. Nobody here, the tracker between him and Akira. And we already know about the Ana de Armas ballerina film that is in the works. I think it's already filming. There's a mini series prequel that chronicles sort of the start of the continental in New York coming out on Peacock later this year. Um, that has Mel Gibson as the villain role. And I, I think one of the guys from the Kingsman or something like that playing one of the one of the leads, like like the new move, like the new prequel Kingsman movie. I think maybe I'm misremembering who it is. I'm forgetting not who Harris Dickinson, right? It's not Harris Dickinson. Maybe I'm misremembering who it is, who it is off the top of my head right now. It doesn't matter. But they have I a lot say- of stuff in the in the hopper. Ana de Armas really putting herself through the ringer, like between you do like this crazy movie with your ex, Ben Affleck sure. in Deep Water, yeah. you do Blonde, which yeah. is like one of the most emotionally punishing movies, like it seems like to to be part of. And now you have to do what I assume the physically is punishing and insanely yeah. physically excruciating like process of getting yourself ready for this. I think you're absolutely right. But all I'm going to say is that if what she's able to do in ballerina sort of emulates or evokes what she did in no time to die as Paloma, I mean, good Lord, let's go. Uh, Scott, I watched this film 
just as a very quick aside, since we're talking about Anna Armas, and we're probably not going to talk about her again uh, on this episode after this. Do we think that she's playing Natalia, like a younger version of Natalia, who is the risk aroma woman who helps John at, you know, you know, halfway, yeah. two thirds of the way through the film? I was wondering this as I left the yeah. theater. Um, if so, it's going to be a very weird uh, aging up. <laughs> like just to think of Anna Darmus yeah, and then yeah. Natalie uh, Tenna, I think is her name, uh, playing her. I think she's like, a, I was trying to figure out how I, where I recognized her from. She plays Nymphadora Tonks in the Harry Potter films, Scott. Very random. Um, no. You say so. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, we can move on from that point. The, the point is that there's a lot of John Wick movies and and to sort of circle why I think that's that's so relevant and so important is that yes you know maybe we question do we really need all of these different spinoffs of John Wick I think these are valid questions but the reason why you'd even entertain that question to begin with in any of these movies to be made is because the world is just so good like the way that they develop the world is so good and that doesn't change here in this film there's probably like fewer developments I mean you learn a little bit more about the high table in this film and stuff like that but there's probably fewer lore developments in this movie than there were in the previous three films, you know, individually. And I think that it, it really just sort of coasts off of all the hard work that those three films have done, creating this world that is super interesting that you don't understand all the different parts of. But it just sort of works. All the parts just sort of fit together and work really smoothly. John knows everyone except for Mr. Nobody. I mean, I think I was seeing some tweet thread someone talking about how this character is the first person in this franchise that John Wick has seen who's like an assassin that he does not recognize or like acknowledge or like you know say hello to essentially as like a recognized person obviously this isn't counting the random people on the street that are trying to assassinate him but you know you have Common in John Wick 2 you've got you know Halle Berry's character in John Wick 3 just as an off the cuff example um, it just seems like he knows everybody but he doesn't know who this mysterious figure is Anyway, I think it's really cool. This is an incredible film. I haven't even really talked about the set pieces themselves. Unbelievable stuff. The stuff in the last hour is just nuts. Everything from when he gets off that train in Paris to the end of the film is crazy pills. Um, I will say I don't think that uh, that Lawrence Fishburne, the the homeless king or whatever his name is, the, ba- I don't think, the Bowery King. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he uh, he did him much of a favor because because he's down in the in the sewers and is like, hey, can you get me as close to the church as you can? It doesn't seem like he gets him very close because yeah. he then has yeah. to like fight <laughs> fight through like armies of people and climb the stairs and everything like just to get there. Yeah, I was also wondering about that. I'm like, is there really no public transportation closer to Sacre Coeur yeah. than where he was let out in front of like the, he has let out like in front of the Eiffel Tower? Like, I don't understand Paris geography and, at all. But and why does he choose that location? I guess if you know if he knows that this might be a possibility. Anyway, to let John Doesn't cook. Matter. That's why they want to. He yeah, wanted exactly. to let John cook in Paris. That's what he let wanted John to do. Wick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wicker's gonna wick. Um, but yeah, Scott, you, you mentioned a ton of the supporting cast. I didn't really touch too closely on any of them, but we have to talk about Keanu Reeves. I mean, the guy doesn't have many lines, but he does a lot of acting. I think it's fair to say, um, if, if nothing else, then just purely physically acting to kill as many people as possible. What did you think of Keanu's performance? Is he continuing to deliver four movies into this franchise? And at the age of what is he now? 59, 60? Yeah, that's just crazy to think about that he's that old, honestly. When you said it's him that, and Tom I, like, Cruise. Honestly, 
Him and Tom Cruise are just just old kings killing action movies left and right. He's 58. Like he's really leaning in in this movie. I feel like maybe even more so than in the previous movies. And I think, you know, this movie, I think, has a new screenwriter, right, from the previous. But um, anyway, I think that the new screenwriter maybe, like, is asking him to lean into, like, the Keanu persona a little bit more. Because, yeah. like, you know, obviously John Wick is not somebody who delivers a whole lot of dialogue in the first place. But here it seems like 60 to 70 percent of his dialogue is just, like, one-liners or saying, yeah, yeah. you know, or consequences over and over again yeah. like yeah he has the way that way of delivering the lines which like not many people i think could pull off it is definitely campy but it just works in the universe that this movie in the, the world that this movie has created and in the persona that keanu reeves has created for himself over you know 30 years of being an action star i mean like I know that there are other people who are considered like the number one action star, you know, whatever Harrison Ford, you want to say somebody like that, but like between speed between the matrix films and now between John wick, like I defy you to, to, you know, put about anyone else up next to that, that run right there. Like that is, you know, as good as action movies get like what we're what we're talking about there but anyway yeah i mean he's certainly um, on the pedestal with harrison ford or tom cruise there's no doubt about that yeah right and like tom cruise he you know physically like he seems to be like he's never been in better shape honestly than you know than he is in this movie i mean quite frankly scott Um, john wick should be dead you know you know spoilers real controversial statement there The the absolute punishment that this man endures so, is insane. Which time was it? The first time that he fell off of the top of a building, or the second time, or the third time that you thought he should have died? Maybe, but yeah, my you know, favorite is when he just like swan dives out of the window, like from like oh five stories up. <laughs> yeah, he did that. Man, my theater was wild for this movie. By the way, I didn't even talk about that. I should have. I was, I was uh, hollering. Like, yeah, I honestly, was. people were literally on their feet at certain points in, in the film. <laughs> in my theater, my my packed, like nearly sold out IMAX screening on Thursday night. But when <laughs> when he jumped out that house window in the film, I I like I don't even know how I don't even know how to describe the noise that came out of my mouth when he did that. I was just like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure, why not? Um, yeah. But look, he sells it. He gives like the character the gravitas. Again, even as ridiculous as like the line deliveries are and everything, like he gives the character the gravitas somehow that like this character requires, right? Like he is the Baba Yaga. He is the most yeah. feared man in this whole underworld. And you you get it. Uh not just because of, you know, what he does physically, but of just the way he carries himself in general. And Again, the one-liners and stuff, like, maybe they get a little bit old. And, and you know, that is part of my overarching complaint about his character development. Is like, there, it seems like there's moments when people are trying to, like, goad him into, you know, really commenting on the fact that a lot of his friends have died as a result of, you know, his actions, his quest for revenge, for example. And he's just like, but I'm going to kill you next. Like he just says something like that, like yeah. some, you know, kind of trite line about like, you know, that's like the badass guy, cool guy walking away from an explosion line or whatever, instead of like actually engaging with the deeper questions that these people are 
are asking, which is, you know what, again, at the end of the day, it's fine. Like I'm there for the vibes. Yeah. A lot of vibes. I mean, I mean, I feel like so much of the character is just the vibe he gives off, right? It is just the energy he puts out there into the world. And yeah, the, I, I was taking a look at the different screenwriters on the different movies. Obviously Derek Kolstad wrote or co-wrote the first three films he created the original film um, that Stahelski co-directed with David Leach. Shay Hatton joined Colstad on the last film, and he is a co-writer on this film along with a new person, Michael Finch. Um, Scott, do not look up Shay Hatton. You will not enjoy reading his credits list. But um, it, it does seem like there is a little bit of... To, <laughs> there is some continuity from John Wick Chapter 3 into Chapter 4 because Derek Colstad did depart and did not return to write Chapter 4. But... I agree. I think that with three and certainly even more so with four, it does feel like he's leaning in. One of the things that I liked about three is the fact that you really, you got to learn more about John specifically through that sort of relationship indirectly from that relationship he had with Halle Berry's character. They didn't do a ton with that, but it, it did give a bit of a window into what, you know, a little bit more about the history of the character. And I feel like they tried to kind of do that by doing the same thing, by giving you Koji and Kane and the relationships that he has with those two characters in this film. But sort of like you, I just, I felt like they couldn't quite figure out how to, to give you more through those relationships. It just felt like, oh, this is another person that John knew at some point in his career it didn't feel like you were learning about John as a character. And I think that's another point that I under, that I'd highlight to sort of bolster what you were saying. Right. Yeah. The, the side characters, their individual stories are much more interesting than their connection to John and their interaction with John and, you know, everything that goes on between the two of them. It's like, I'm much more invested in like both of their, because both of them have like their familial relationships. Sure. They are I mean, they both, both these them. characters have daughters, right? Like it's yes. Akira for Koji. It's, I don't even remember what Donnie Yen's daughter's name is, but Kane has the same situation. And that and, is definitely the investment point and not necessarily their relationship with John. And again, at the end of the day, I think those two actors, I think Sonata and Donnie Yen, they're just like, carry so much weight like in everything that they do and they're sure. on screen like again it doesn't even it doesn't even matter like when i'm watching them like fight in the the garden there outside the yeah the continental i'm just like this is just like it just feels like you're watching two, two of like the coolest most badass dudes like just just fighting and like that's really all that matters i mean everything about i mean we can sort of pivot a little bit maybe and, and briefly talk about that first action sequence i do want to talk about some of the other characters more specifically in a minute but Everything about starting the sort of starting the film with the first big set piece being the Osaka Continental. I mean, I've got like no notes for that entire 30 to 40 minute sequence. I don't know. You look like you're about to drop a note, but I, I mean, I, I was having such a blast. I loved that they sort of really leaned into the, you know, sort of neon urban Japanese aesthetic. Uh, and I thought that what they made ultimately was really really cool and and Rina Sawayama was a firecracker on screen honestly I I really thought I mean based on that part of the film I'm like is she gonna kind of be like a co-main character in I this wanted film? that so bad oh my yeah. god yeah me too and then you know asterisk but she never really shows up in the movie that, after that 
which they is really leave the door open though i feel like for her oh to, yeah we'll, we'll to talk about it. i mean something. They, yeah. they were teasing a an unannounced john wick project that's already in development today and i'm willing to bet a large sum of money that she will be in that movie if she is not the main character even if she like she's the she's the main character but if not that then she's in the film it's so crazy like you know i'm such a big fan of her music right like i yeah. uh that her first album in particular from i guess it was the covid year 2020 like i just obsessively listened to that album during that year never like knew that she had any sort of ambitions like this maybe she never knew that she had any sort yeah. of ambitions like this i mean until yeah the opportunity the came along um did common man, have ambitions yeah. like this for john wick chapter two well common had acted before but, that's true um, that's true you know like i said in my letterbox review i i definitely forgive her now for her second album being a little disappointing because uh i know what she was doing at the same time and yeah hot damn um she was <laughs> amazing in her you know 15 minutes or so in this movie i will say about the osaka sequence you know you have to find little things in this movie to to you don't have quibble to with but go ahead i'm saying if you're gonna I'm find kidding. things to quibble with, they have to be little things yeah, yeah i do think maybe there's a little bit it gets a little repetitive because it goes on <laughs> for a long time yeah, yeah and yeah. like there's a point where you know they're fighting in the lobby and all of that and then they separate and john uh uh koji says to him like oh kill as many of them as you can like on your way out and then john goes into like the like neon yeah room or whatever it is and like it's almost like a like a a display room where there's tons like, of weapons yeah, like and a armor. art gallery type thing. yeah 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 and he gets into a very extended fight with <laughs> some like big henchman dudes and I did feel like maybe that went on a little bit too long because a lot of it was, you know, a lot of it was hand-to-hand -hand combat. A lot of it was like gun foo and stuff like that. It wasn't really reinventing the wheel in the way that some of the other action scenes were. So if I had, you know, if I had to find a, a quibble there, it might be. You didn't like that, the nunchucks? Oh, man. The nunchucks were good. Yeah, the nunchucks were good. Yeah. But then, you know, like we we go from that to the garden fight like i was talking about between kane and yeah i mean also Koji. before that you have donnie yen going through the hotel yeah, with his john john and kane yeah. fight a little bit but um well no no because uh, the, yes they do but i'm saying before that's where that, you have, like playing dead and yeah yeah but then you but you before that you have donnie yen like going through the hotel and you sort of see his style of fighting because he is blind yeah. and he's that's sitting there really, like eating really eating cool. noodles or whatever yeah. and they're like are you he's gonna ripping do anything down some and then he just like rex eight guys <laughs> he uses little, uh, like doorbell sensors or whatever that he has yeah that was pretty sick yeah he always plays blind guys now i guess i was gonna say he... between this and cheer at Mway or whatever in rogue yeah. one you think the force was with him in this film he does have that like zen like thing about him or whatever that make that does make him perfect for like again makes you believe like this blind dude could be doing all of this crazy stuff but i mean he yeah, literally the plays the martial arts great. god and isn't isn't that what it man is i don't even know i'm actually know oh yeah, man yeah. Is, but anyway um yeah i mean why don't we talk about donnie and we're starting we're starting to talk about him already he kind of is i think he kind of ends up being the second lead of the film i think it's safe to say if you thought lawrence fishburne was going to feature prominently after the events of chapter three I'd say you were pretty wrong. Ian McShane features fairly prominently as well, though he is gone for large swaths of the movie. But Donnie Yen always seems to be right there, just around the corner. You sort of talked earlier about how you really felt like he's perfect casting for this type of film. 
that's looking for this specific type of action. Uh, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, like like I was saying earlier, I think he he's an he's a sympathetic figure, like almost from the beginning, because we understand like the first scene that we see of him is him being taken to Bill Skarsgård and Bill Skarsgård being like, well, you got to kill John um, or I'm going to kill your family. And he's like, well, I don't really want to do that. You know, he's my friend. And, you know, Bill Skarsgård is just like too bad. Um, so you understand, you know, he doesn't want to be doing what he's doing. And even like when he fights Koji, right. And we, you know, we love Koji obviously as a character too. Mm -hmm. He has to kill him, but like, it's honestly Koji's fault, right. Because he's like ready to walk away multiple times in the battle. And Koji just like keeps fighting him to the point where, um, you know, Donnie and Kane, you know, has to basically put him down. Um, so it, yeah, it's cool because there's like just a lot of competing, competing interests. Like, you, of course, you also feel for for Rena, and you know, you understand why she wants her revenge against him and whatnot. But it's like he wasn't necessarily doing what he was doing out of malevolence. But I think Donnie Yen, you know, he walks that line very carefully. His Zen-like thing is very appealing, um, and like you just respect him because of his fighting ability as like, you know, this blind warrior. Um, And and like I was saying with Reeves, he just like, he carries that gravitas. He carries that weight every time he's on screen. Like you are fascinated to watch what he does. And so it makes the, the denouement of the movie that much more satisfying because the movie does kind of like to kind of get its cake and eat it too, kind of uh, with, with the relationship between the two of them and with, with Kane in particular. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, I think a lot of times in a lot of films, I think I'd be, you know, I'd be giving the film a little bit of side eye for doing something like that. But there's something about the way they approach the characters and Donnie Yen's performance, obviously Keanu Reeves's performance as well, that the, you, you really do, in spite of the circumstances, really feel the camaraderie between these two guys. And I think ultimately, I mean, we're sort of mildly spoiling the end of the film, I guess like the resolution of the film. It's extremely satisfying. I'll be honest. Like it really feels like the perfect outcome. No notes on the end of the film personally. And it's only, I think it's, it is really a a primary reason for that is because Donnie Yen really sells it. If you, you know, if you want to maybe give the movie some credit for the John character stuff that we're talking about, maybe being a little weaker, you know, you could say that all the while, John, you know, he hasn't been concerned about his friends or whatever. He's only been concerned about revenge. Well, here in the end, right, here's a friend, here's Kane, and, you know, he has the opportunity to kill him in this duel. And, you know, instead he finds a way to get Kane his freedom, right? To, to save Kane, to, you know, protect Kane. And, and that's something he's consistently sacrifices done. himself in doing it. Yeah. That, that, and that is also something that he has pretty consistently done, not necessarily sacrifice himself, but find creative ways out of situations that doesn't involve killing, you know, the person that's in front of him. I think you see that in John Wick chapter two, you start, I'll say this. You certainly don't see that in John Wick in the first John Wick film. He kills everyone in that movie. John Wick yeah. Chapter Two, though, common. You know, this was a debate that I was having with with 
you know, friend of the pod, Jay, after we saw this movie together. And Jay was like, yeah, I don't think Common's dead at the end of the film, at the end of the film. And I was like, yeah, I guess he's technically not. Like, he sticks that knife in his heart, but he tells him, hey, like, if you pull this out, you die and leaves him there on the train. So he finds this situation where he's able to sort of spare the other person. Now, whether you believe Common's out there and kicking still, that's up for you, up for you to decide. But that's like one example of, of him doing that before. You know, it, it is interesting that it's a bit of a character trait that, you know, people in the game that he knows that he likes, he tries not to. Yeah. He tries to find creative solutions. It's a mutual respect thing, obviously. Again, yeah. it makes sense within the, the underworld they've created. Like, you know, John understands that most of these people are just doing what they do because it's the job, right? Because, or, you know, again, in the case of Kane, maybe there's even something more serious on the line um, yeah. in that situation. And so he, he gets it, he respects it because he is also that person. So I think, I think that part of it works pretty well. And yeah, again, obviously it is very satisfying what he's able to do in the end. And, you know, he's really paying Kane back in a way because the previous scene is the stairs, right? And John is, is not going to make it up. He's down and out. <laughs> unless Kane yeah. comes along and says, let's do this together. And they do. Man, the visceral groans <laughs> in the crowd, you know, in the stair scene after, yeah. you know, spoilers, he makes it to the top uh, of the stairs and gets shoved all the way down. I mean, every single subsequent flight that he goes tumbling down is just a louder and louder groan. I mean, it's Chekhov's stairs, right? Like, you don't introduce yeah. that unless you know that something like that is about to happen. You don't introduce the 122 stairs or whatever it is. Unless... I think it's I think it's 222 stairs, but yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's even, even worse. Somebody... <laughs> Based on the precedent that has been set, you, you pretty much expect that somebody's going to get thrown down those stairs. Yeah, that was... It was tough to watch. <laughs> it goes on for so long when he's falling down on the stairs. Brutal stuff. I don't know who his stunt double. I mean, there's no way that's Keanu on the stairs. I don't I don't believe that it's Keanu rolling down those stairs. But whoever the stunt double is for that, God bless him. Um, that looked pretty rough. We were talking about the finale of the film. We've jumped around a little bit, and there's definitely some more set pieces I want to talk about. But the finale of the film, you're we were sort of alluding to it being very satisfying. Part of that is this solution that that we are, you know, tiptoeing around talking about what it is. But I think because now it makes sense to talk about Bill Skarsgård, who is, I think, properly the villain of the film. He obviously is a huge part of the end of the film. I'll go ahead and we'll just say we'll spoil it. Keanu Reeves' John Wick does find this creative solution to not kill Kane and instead, you know, legally within the rights of the or the rules of the duel kill the marquee instead. And that being very satisfying. And Bill Skarsgård really feels like he's trying to corner the market on uh deplorable villains and just be a, a weirdo villain and insert movie. I mean, he did it with Pennywise. He's doing it now as the marquee in John Wick chapter four. He had this, uh, I don't know. He was the Skarsgård that was in, barbarian right i'm not making that up that he, he mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know he, he wasn't a villain in that well i was gonna say he was cast against like specifically against type in mm -hmm. barbarian sort of trying to lean into the fact that he has that you know a bit of that stereotype about him but i think he's been villains in a couple other films as well like isn't he the villain in eternals is it doesn't he do the voice of the villain in 
in Eternals and the mocap and stuff. I think I remember anything about that movie, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you love the filmmaker. I assume you'd remember it. Um, I'm kidding. Except, except uh, Kingo just like decided not to show up for the final fight. I do remember that. He was just like, yeah, yeah. thanks. You guys got which one. which one was Kingo? You're gonna have to remind me. I don't remember. That was Kumail Nanjiani. That's yeah. Kumail Nanjiani's character. Got it. Yep. Sure. That makes sense. Um. Anyway, so I, I I feel like he really has this. He's really interested in being a villain. I think he was the villain, and I don't know if you ever saw this film, Scott, but I think he was one of the villains in Atomic Blonde, the Charlize Theron spy mm. film with David Leach. Um. So it, it really feels like he's interested in playing these types of characters, and he certainly brings a lot to the table. I think as the marquee. Did you think, did you, do you sort of agree with that or do you disagree? Do you think it was a good performance? I did like him. Uh, I will say it took me a little bit to get into his character because I think, again, he's in a movie with so many legends, right? You talk about, again, Donnie Yen, you talk about Sonata, you talk about Keanu Reeves, you talk about Scott Adkins, who, like, in yeah. his own we'll talk right, about has a like a yeah. particular corner of the action. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then you have like Bill Skarsgård is the big bad. And it's like, really? Yeah. Like they couldn't have got anyone other than Bill Skarsgård. So I was like, I was wanting in the early scenes to see a little more of that, like intimidation factor from him because he just doesn't quite have that, you know, again, the vibes when he comes on screen, like all these other dudes do. Um, but he grew on me. And, you know, I, I think the scene with him and John, like where they're setting the rules for the duel is really good. Like I enjoyed the, emotional manipulation that he tries to do of john um again uh, bringing up the whole you know what wh when is this going to end for you like john like honestly you know alive or dead really you know it doesn't make a difference to you at this point you're, you're always going to be running when you're alive like do you really want to be free even like isn't this like the thing that's actually giving you purpose in life like you're not just going to go be the the happy husband it's like the, it's like the heat conversation it's like what what does a normal life look like you know backyards and ball games like you know it's that kind right. of stuff what he's uh he's you know was he ready at... to drop everything in 30 seconds or less though is the question right he's he's getting at john wick with that type of stuff and as we're saying john wick just like doesn't engage with any of that at all he's just like whatever yeah. i'm gonna kill you but um it's yeah he, he was a good villain by the end again i think i enjoyed some of the other supporting characters more but that's by design i mean you know this guy is just he's evil there's not much else to him than that but i did enjoy the way in which he was evil the manner in which his evil spread across the world yeah. yeah exactly you know uh, we talked a little bit about paris already we're gonna end talking about paris don't worry scott we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about the house in paris as the last thing we talk about but i do want to talk about scott atkins first it's sort of the one sequence of the film we haven't spent too much time talking about. John goes to Germany and to mend his key or whatever the hell it's called. Mend his ticket. That's what it is. Um, so he goes to the Rusca Roma in Germany and he has to sort of make amends with the family. Unfortunately, his uncle, who I guess the impression is that he was sort of the head of the family, is has been killed. And instead, it is his adoptive sister, Katya, played by Natal Natalia Tenna. I believe that's her name. I said it earlier. I think it's Natalia Tenna. Yeah. And she plays this woman who is the person John's going to have to convince to mend his ticket. Uh, to do that, it involves 
doing this uh doing the side quest i think as you described it earlier and that is going to take vengeance on the on the man who killed uh john's uncle or the head of the family and his name is killa scott can we just pause for a second and appreciate the name killa and he is played by scott atkins in a fat suit you were talking about a sequence going on for a long time in the Osaka Continental set piece where they're in this room fighting um, a ton of people who keep coming into this room. Waves and waves of enemies. And I don't think that the this set piece is too long, but it is hilarious to me how long it lasted. Um and again, when you factor in that this entire what is going on is just a complete side quest, like I said, from the main, <laughs> like, again, yeah. he needs the Ruska Roma to, like, sponsor him for, for the duel. For the duel, yeah. Yeah, which is the main plot of the movie, is the A plot. Yeah. And But the Ruska Roma, like, it is like a video game. It's like, oh, we're not actually going to help you unless you go do this favor for us. You've and, killed, like, I think the quote is like, you've killed thousands of people yeah. to get out. You only have to kill one person one to get more, back yeah. in. <laughs> but yeah for people who don't know scott atkins like he basically is known as like the direct to video the like straight to dvd martial arts king he has all of these like martial arts and you know he's the jean-claude van damme of the movies. modern era yes uh but most of his major work is in direct to video directivity but he is like a cult figure honestly among among really sweaty action movie fans, um, <laughs> yeah. like people love Scott Atkins because he is, you know, he is a martial artist. Like he is very physically gifted um, when it comes to these yeah. types of films. And I mean, a bunch so, of his movies know. literally don't even have Wikipedia pages. I'm just like looking yeah. at his. He was in It Man, though. He was that he was there with Donnie yeah. Ann in It Man. That's sick. But uh, yeah, he, you know, this kind of like a big deal for him being in this, you know, huge movie because it's not really what he's made up, made his name off of doing. But he definitely makes the most of his like, I mean, I guess it's one scene, but it's an extended scene, as you're you're saying in in his like nightclub. Um, Another like, you know, crazy, like the amount of extras in this like nightclub where they're just. Also, is it normal in Germany for this type of fighting to be taking place in the club? People were un. No one was questioning it. Yeah, yeah, unfazed Uh, by by this. And 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 then finally, after he kills him, it's like everyone is like kind of scurrying out of the club. And I was like, well, you know, why didn't you do this a lot earlier? Like, is it just because he died now? Like, what did you? How did you think this fight was going to end? (laughs) Like, yeah. um, I mean, John gets thrown a whole floor down or whatever. He gets thrown over the side into the waterfall. They're fighting in the waterfall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's really sick. Yeah, I loved like just the setup of it too, where they're playing cards and. That was a he great cheats, scene. basically, and uh, and then, you know, it's it's this an amazing setup, right? Where they're all at the table, and Kane is there, and the tracker that Mister Nobody is there, and like all of them want to kill John, except for John, and John wants to kill Killa, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then so they like play this card game to decide who's going to get to like do the the deed, and then Killa cheats, and they're all just like. Okay, actually, never mind. Now we all want to kill you. <laughs> and so yeah. they start going after him. It starts to like John like throws a playing card at him, right? And like slashes Cut, his cuts throat him or on the cheek yeah. or something like that. On the yeah. Cheek, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's awesome. And Scott Atkins, like again, you see this guy and you're like, he doesn't look like he can fight, right? He's in this fat suit and everything, but like, man, he really kicks John's right. ass for a little bit there. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just fun to watch. Like at the end of the day, it has really no significance whatsoever to the plot of the movie, but um it's it really just gives fun. you a little I mean, it's one of the few moments where you get more lore in the film. Like you learn a little bit yeah. more about the risk aroma. I mean, some of the shit that they were doing, I mean we already saw him get branded by them or whatever last in the last film when he's getting his ticket torn. Got to do some more branding on him in this film after he returns yeah. with proof of having killed Killa. And um, that's some that's some nasty stuff, Scott. I'm not a fan of branding. Um, no, thank you. Yeah, not doesn't seem like it would be a lot of fun for that to happen to you for sure. Yeah. All right, Scott. Got to deliver on promises, otherwise there will be consequences. So we have to talk about what I think is the craziest scene in the film. In the film, I don't know if you agree or not, but to me, well, I think there's one right before it that, like, maybe slightly outdoes it. But yeah, the, certainly these two. Well, scenes, I was gonna, yeah, which are yeah, like yeah, basically yeah. in succession with each other are like yeah, those are the the set, the highlights of this movie for sure. Yeah, I was gonna talk about both of them sort of at the same time because I know that you are a huge fan of the. Arch de Triumph scene, which is the, mm -hmm. of course, I think the infamous traffic circle in the heart of Paris, where, I mean, I don't even know what was happening in <laughs> the scene, honestly. Yeah, I mean, essentially, they're fighting in the middle of, like, the street in this, you yeah. know, traffic circle, as you say, with these cars speeding Pure by. chaos, because there's no... Yeah, there's no direction. Like, I have traffic. no idea how they pulled this thing off, but they're like shooting between the cars. They're jumping on the people are getting hit by the cars. You have the tracker there and his dog is like jumping over cars and stuff like this. Yeah, it is just an, an absolute achievement again. And, and even though with all this chaos, like you don't like lose what is actually going on again, it's really like brilliantly directed by Stahelski in that yeah. um, aspect. But like, I've just never seen like an action scene with that many like moving parts before uh, like quite literally moving parts and, and to some extent that like is so captivating, like, especially for how extended it is. I mean, this is something that, yeah. that Jay was just going on and on about when I think in his letterbox reviews and texting me when I was getting him to watch the first three John Wick films over the last week or two. But one of the things that I also appreciated and noticed it more on the rewatch is just, it's insane how few cuts there are in these sequences relative to other action movies. It's not only yeah. are they doing crazier stuff than other action movies are. They're showing you more clearly and, and cogently what is happening on the screen when it's all going down. And that is true in this scene as well. I, I understand the filmmaking tricks that they use. Like what's really like we I understand that what's happening is the cars are driving pretty slowly and they speed it up in post-production to make it look like it's going a lot faster, but it's still crazy. Like it's still, it still is crazy what they're doing. Even if the cars are driving 25 miles per hour instead of 50 or 40 or whatever is still nuts. I don't think it really takes away from the achievement of, of the whole thing. And again, like you said, it, for an extended period of time, this, this scene's like 15, 20 minutes long, right? Like it's not a short scene and you never lose track of what's going on. And it's, it's, I love it's he's a, like using the beat. He's like using the doors of his car as weapons, yeah. basically. Like, yeah. it's unreal. Like, yeah. And then comes and then, the and then if that wasn't exactly, yeah, about, if yeah. that if that wasn't enough for you, Scott, we have my favorite scene of the film, 
which is when he finally gets out of the Arch de Triumph. He, I, I don't even, I don't even specifically remember why he went into this house. I think it was just maybe to get off the street briefly, but he makes his way into this house, this abandoned building um, at the base of the stairs that are ultimately going to lead up to the Sacre Coeur. And inside this house, he is chased, of course, by what feels like hundreds of assassins who somehow are still alive and have not died in the Arche de Triumph. And earlier on before this, when they first learn that John Wick is on the streets of Paris and they're sending all the assassins out, you see a, a group of assassins loading what look like very specific shotgun shells into their guns. And those assassins arrive in this building and there's a bit of a cat and mouse game early on as it sort of introduces you to the house and, and the men chasing John down. But in the meat of the action, what happens is that J first off, John Wick gets his hand on a shotgun with incendiary bullets. And second off, when the action really heats up in this building, they what do mean? some of one of the craziest things that I've ever seen in terms of camera work in an action film before where they go, they, they have the camera track above the action like above this house and just tracks john through the entire house as he murders pretty much everyone in in the building and and i don't feel like my description can quite do it justice it is one of the most jaw-dropping things i've seen in an action movie to see them do this on a single pretty much a single take i think there was one cut in the middle they basically did it in two takes this very extended probably five to six minute long sequence where He's making his way through his house. He's doing his normal like gunfight stuff. He's ducking in around. He's shooting people. He's hand to hand combat. He's reloading. He's shooting them again. Like it's just nuts what they were able to accomplish with with literally one cut. It was insane. Yeah, I, I think like I have overhead shots is like a kink for me. Honestly, at this point, it's like a kink. <laughs> um, I I love like when it is when it is executed well, and like this is like the the you know Godfather of all. Like Malignant was a recent example of one that did like actually pretty similar to what they do in this movie, where like it's like overhead like tracking her all through the house and everything as she's walking. It looks it makes it look like a dollhouse effect, basically. Sure. Um, it's an isometric it feels view like you're, is the name of it. Yeah, it feels yeah. like you're watching some sort of like platformer video game or something almost in a way. Um, but it's the Hotline it Miami. Is, I don't know if you've ever played that game. Scott, yeah, but it's the yes, Hotline I, Miami. I know what it is. Yeah, it's just uh, and again, it's it's the same as Malignant where it's like, is there any reason to be doing this right now? No, except that it looks awesome. Like that <laughs> yeah, is the reason. It's to unbelievable. Do it. and, like that is reason enough. And yeah. yeah Especially when you factor in like the incendiary shotgun, people getting blown back. Again, you have the dog is in here, like jumping over furniture and stuff. Yeah. Like it is amazing. Like again, I, I, you know, describing it as a video game sometimes would like make you think bad, maybe, but like it's it's not that. Like it is just a, again, you're how did they pull this off? And yeah, um, you wonder why more action movies aren't doing cool cool stuff like this and the reason it's got is because they they can't figure out how to do it that's yeah like, that's they the don't have the ingenuity just, that these they don't have the commitment the ingenuity um like it's it sounds like tried to say it but like they just simply they don't have keanu reeves and they don't have chad stahelski and that's yeah, the reason they're not doing yeah. it um yeah. it's pretty crazy i mean what they were able to accomplish is, is pretty nuts and just to cap things all off scott i know you're not a huge dog fan but you know paying it forward with the dog love in this film because the end of the sequence right before John Wick jumps out of the building into the street 
he does, um, instead of killing Mr. Nobody, um, kills the sort of henchman of the Marquis who's about to kill Mr. Nobody's dog and saves the dog um, instead. So, you know, retribution for the honestly, one of the cardinal sins of, of movie making is killing killing someone's dog like on screen, which is what happens in the first John Wick movie. Like it is a, that's why it, this whole thing started. <laughs> I know it is. It is truly incredible that, that they were able to bounce back um, from that because that really feels like one of the few things you should never do in a film. And they have been paying it forward ever since, you know, chapter two, they, the dog gets out of the house alive when it's burning chapter three. Of course you have Halle Berry's dogs. Um, killing people and eating stuff and you have that here too and john wick saves the dog so it's i saw somebody did a meme of like the dominant little domino leading to the big domino and it's like the little domino is like you know somebody steals john wick's whatever model of car it was or whatever and then the big domino is like twelve thousand four hundred and seventy people die or something (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm sure some like sicko out there has like counted the number of people that wick kills I can't films. even imagine, but yeah, probably somebody has. Yeah. It'll be pretty hard to do, I feel like, in some of these scenes where you have multiple, like the Halle Berry scene, like how many people did Halle Berry versus John Wick kill in that scene? Like, it's hard to even, mm-hmm. hard to separate those things. But I'm sure someone's doing the Lord's work out there, figuring that out. Last thing to talk about before we end the wrap-up phase, Scott, the finale, we danced around it a bit. The end of the film, Donnie Yen's character, Kane, is the sort of stand-in in the duel for the Marquis while Keanu Reeves as John Wick is, of course, the other person in the in the duel. The duel goes down. Very tense scene. Thought it was good filmmaking, to be honest. And then the conclusion is, of course, John chooses not to fire his gun in the last round of the duel, fa- you know, becoming fatally wounded from Donnie Yen's shot that, um, that does hit him. But in his arrogance, the Marquis wants the coup de grace, as he calls it. He wants the killing shot, the killing blow, um, but has not but fails to realize that John did not fire his gun in the last round. And so when he walks up to execute John at point blank range, he gets a, uh, I don't even know what kind of gun they're using. Consequences. He gets, he consequences. gets consequences. Yeah. How did I miss my opportunity to do it again? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the marquee gets his consequences and I think gets his, uh, gets his brains blown out right in front of us all. Incredibly satisfying stuff. We've talked about that already. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory why that would be satisfactory but the other the other side of that coin of the end of the film is of course john wick appears scott to have died he seems to have passed away succumbs to his injuries from the duel he gets winston to agree to bury him next to his wife back in you know just outside new york city where his wife is buried in the first film and that is the end of the film sans the post-credit scene which we can briefly mention in a second scott i didn't think they'd be brave enough to do it to kill him. Do you think they, they have killed him? Is he dead? <laughs> yeah. What do you think? All right, listen, I know that we have complained about this a lot recently, and we we had some conversations about it with Scream, obviously, about, sure. you know, we're not actually going to kill the main characters. Like, we have to keep them alive or whatever. Um, If John Wick is dead, you know, cool. Like, again, I am perfectly fine. I think this is a spectacular way to end the franchise. Like, you cer- certainly do not need to make another movie. However, I would make an exception, honestly, Ooh. because because of the the rules that this movie has established with this character. I think it is perfectly within the realm of plausibility if, like, the next movie starts and it's just John Wick reaching up from out of the grave <laughs> and like clawing his way out. 
back uh, to the land of the living i think i would just shrug and be like yeah i mean sure that makes sense like i don't feel like they forced this it's just that's what i would expect from john wick um, i mean scott the number of times john's been shot stabbed yeah. pushed off a building is this has this really killed him it's just he took three gunshot wounds it's fine it's like not a big deal right yeah i, I mean again I, I would i would believe it but um either way i think they have you know again if this is indeed the last film i know they want to do all these side projects and whatever that's cool but as far as if if, if this is the ending to the john wick story i think it's a great ending like again i i can't imagine it ending in a more satisfying way um they're welcome to try like i said but honestly i think this is a great capper you know again you get the nice little emotional payoff he, he's like they're having the conversation what do you want on your tombstone or whatever he's like i want loving husband yeah and then you know you see you get the reveal i guess that his wife's tombstone says loving wife so there they are buried right next to each other loving husband loving wife so um and then you know the winston and uh and lawrence fishburne have a nice little moment of oh well is he in heaven or, or hell you think he's in heaven or hell oh, i don't know and they just laugh and walk yeah. off um yeah we we do Great know that, that he will at least make an appearance in Ballerina. I, I kind of got the impression that it will be a cameo, not yeah. not even a supporting role. That's kind of the so, vibe yeah. that, I, that I had gotten. I do think Ian McShane's character will, will feature more prominently. And now saying all this, I feel like there's no way that Anadarmus is playing that character from Germany, the Ruska Roma woman. Now having said that out yeah. loud, it doesn't make much sense that that would be the case. But... I do feel like, um, you know, we're going to see him again in a John Wick film. And I'm just looking at comments that, you know, Chad Stahelski has made, I think, since the, you know, around the release and the press junk and stuff. And he said, um, there's no plans for an immediate sequel. In our minds, Keanu and I are done for the moment. We're going to give John Wick a rest. I'm sure the studio has a plan, though. If everyone loves it and it goes kooky, then we'll take a quiet minute and maybe we'll be back. So I think what that means, because uh, I'm looking at, um, you know, the crazy returns that this film is almost certainly going to have. I mean, it's going to be the biggest film in the franchise so far. I think that give it give it three or four years, maybe, and uh, they'll have a conversation. And if Keanu feels like he can physically do it, they're going to be cooking again. Yeah. And I, again, I'm fine with that. Let's take some time off. Everyone involved probably needs a break. Um, and... Yeah. I mean, I'm also yeah. sure like they have, a. I mean, I'm sure Chad Stahelski has other projects lined up. I haven't actually looked at he should, if he has yeah. any other projects announced, but I mean, how could this I person mean, yeah, not it, be in demand? If if you're making an action movie nowadays, like he has to be number one on your list to direct it. Like, I, honestly, I don't know who else you would put number one. Tony Scott died, unfortunately. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I'm just looking at, funnily enough, actually, I'm just looking here. Did you know that he was the second unit director and the stunt coordinator for Birds of Prey? Back in 2020, I didn't, but again, it makes sense. I think that movie has great action. So, um, not that I'm trying to will this into existence, Scott, because that's not something that I actually want. But if you're Marvel, why aren't you trying to get some action movie with Chad Stahelski directing it? Like, why aren't you trying to do something like that? Because it takes too much effort. Again, they want to churn out these movies, like, yeah in record time whereas i you know i'm sure he this process of him making this is very meticulous and um, oh i mean for sure definitely i mean it takes again, him about three it seems like it takes them 
I know there was five years between or four years. I said 2018 earlier. It was 2019 for John Wick Chapter 3. I know it's been four years in between films, but I think before that it was like two or three years between each film. So it takes some time. They're not able to go back to back to back on these things. Um, if I had to, you know, speculate as to a reason, that would be be my guess is that the... Like, why the, didn't the he direct time... Shang-Chi? I know I'm not trying to replace Destin, Destin Daniel Cretton with a yeah. white guy. I'm not trying to imply that too heavily, but like that film, what that film needed was it needed even more crazy like hand-to-hand combat and like set pieces like that. And the bus scene was insane. They did such a great job with the bus scene. Needed more of that. They just, they have to protect the sanctity of their universe though. Like they can't have all this camp being introduced like they have to have forced humor instead yeah scott post credit scene we talked about rena sawayama potentially coming back in the secret project that's yet to be announced in the john wick universe post credit scene is a quick one it is donnie yin's kane going to give his daughter a bouquet of flowers because he has been freed from his responsibility to the high table his daughter is no longer threatened by the marquee or by anyone in the high table and he's going to deliver these flowers to her performing her. She, I think she's a violinist, basically. He's playing on the street. She's like a busker playing the violin on the street. And she's going. he's going to give her flowers. And all you see is Rina Sawayama walking up to him, pulls out a box cutter, not even a knife, but a box cutter. I thought that was an interesting choice. And it cuts right before she sort of meets him head on. What do you think, Scott? It's the only uh, it's the only weapon they didn't use, I think, at other points in the movie. So that's why it's a box cutter. But, um, yeah, that's probably true. I mean, look, I'm here for it. Like, I loved both of these characters. We've only gotten one movie with each of them. So if this is the direction they want to go next, like, even better. Um, yeah. You know, again, I like both of them. So I would like to see them come to some sort of alliance. I'm not sure that that's going to happen given their competing interests. But yeah, I, I somehow doubt it is just going to be, she stabs him and that's the end of it. Like, no, he'll survive or fight her off. Like she's going to get a good hit on him, but it's a box cutter. You're probably not going to kill him with a box cutter yeah. on the first go. What are you doing? Not this guy. What are you doing? Akira? Um, come on. It's rookie, rookie move. Anyway, I think that's all I got, Scott. I think we kind of already talked about our favorite scenes or moments. Are you sticking with the arch? Yeah, it's just mind-blowing. It's definitely on the level, if not better, than uh, like the helicopter sequence at the end of Mission Impossible Fallout, which is the other recent one that comes to mind. Yeah, and I sort of, I have the same comp, but for the preceding scene right after it in the in the abandoned house. And you put those two things together, it's, is it more impressive than anything they've done in Mission Impossible? When you put those things yeah, back to back. I think it is. Yeah, it probably is. That's pretty crazy. I don't think I'd ever I didn't think I'd ever be saying that someone up the ante and what is crazier. But we'll what we'll is see Tom Dead Reckoning part do, one. Yeah, yeah, what is he gonna do now after he sees this? Like how is he gonna try to top this? <laughs> I honestly, Scott, I, I mean there was all this of course there's this huge joke going around or whatever that Tom Cruise went what did he see? Shazam two or something? No, or the Flash. He saw the Flash. That's what he saw. He saw the Flash and he's like, This movie's incredible, like everybody needs to go see it. I need, I need like the one sentence Tom Cruise review of this film. That's what I need. He won't actually give his sincere thoughts about any film, though. He, he well, that's of course, of course, who not. he is. He's yeah. just like, it's a movie. I love movies. Like basically, that's what it, his reviews yeah. boil down to. Sure. I mean, the guy loves action. I mean, he went to see Tenet. He was there. He was there when none of us were. 
He's like the guy who goes to football games and just wears an NFL hat because he just loves watching <laughs> watching football. You know, yeah, he loves football. Yeah, don't you go? Don't you go to Cleveland Guardians games and just wear the MLB logo hat? Do you not do that? Yeah, no league I respect more than the MLB. <laughs> Amazing. All right, Scott. Out of ten, what are you giving John Wick Chapter Four? Nine point two. It is. Let him cook. Excellent film, an epic operatic action film that delivers on all of the the hype and expectations and number one movie of the year so far and you know end of march so we're still early but definitely so far yeah i'm in the same ballpark 9.0 for me i don't remember what i gave chapter three but i think i would i think i'm in the same boat as you i will say i did rewatch, as i alluded to earlier the all the movies leading into john chapter four over the past week or so and my estimation of one and two rose on those rewatches. I don't know why I was like fairly I mean, I was pretty lukewarm on the first film. The first time I watched it. I don't know why I rewatched that movie. And I'm like, this is great. It's a great film. Um, I felt the same way about two. I did. I, I feel like I've heard a lot of, of John wick chapter three slander in the last week, Scott, honestly, people yeah, saying it's the worst it. John wick movie, which again, the movie can still be good Shouldn't and be, be the worst John wick movie, but I don't yeah. get that at all because the stuff that they do with horses and dogs in John Wick Chapter Three is is nuts, um, and I'm, I'm here for it. And the knife fight—I mean, the knife fight alone at the beginning of the film is just like, oh my yeah, god, that was my favorite from that movie. Yeah, yeah, crazy stuff. Um, anyway, I think this does sit atop the pile. It is two hours and fifty minutes, which is a very long, a very long runtime, Scott. That runtime is maybe what's preventing me from going to see it a second time. But yeah, I think I still might do it this weekend. I might go see it a second time. Yeah, I uh, I would like to, but honestly, I just don't see that many movies twice in theaters anymore nowadays. And sure, I'm planning to see both Return to Soul and uh, obviously whatever the movie we're doing next week, which is Dungeons and Dragons this weekend. So yeah, the the five star, the David Sims five bagger, Dungeons and Dragons: Honor Among Thieves. I'm ignoring. Isn't that, that I'm sick? totally ignoring that? That's yeah. I saw that, and I thank God I was sitting down. I was I was in yeah. complete shock. It's this number one movie of 2023 so far. It's so good. So funny. He put it above past lives on his list, which is <laughs> yeah. just like kind of hilarious to me. Um, those iconically compared films, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, and Past Lives. Anyway, uh, we're only just beginning on this podcast. We have more to discuss in part two. So that'll do it for John Wick Chapter 4 for now. Um, Unfortunately, some of the news in part two is fairly unpleasant. So, yeah. you know, stick around for that, I guess, if you're looking to balance out the, I don't know, the ecstasy of John Wick Chapter 4 with that. We'll be back right after the break. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. We teased before the break some unpleasant news. Uh, that's primarily focused on our second news story today, although for some people, you may find the first bit of news unpleasant as well. That is the news that there, the film, the iconic Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo is going to be remade. It's going to be starring Robert Downey Jr. with such notable post-MCU film credits as Doolittle um, to his name. And it will be written, at least, 
maybe not directed. I think the director is still in flux for the film, but written by Stephen Knight, who's got, we were talking before we started recording today, is like the ultimate wild card of what you're going to get mm. <laughs> with, with his writing credits. I mean, some real bangers, some high quality stuff, and then some absolute duds as well. I think um, similar to some other news that we're not talking about today is a real head scratcher as to why we're why we're doing this. Um, y- you and I both felt the same also about the news that Questlove is directing an, a, a live action animated like hybrid Aristocats movie <laughs> for Disney, which is another one just like, what on earth is happening? Um, but it, it really there's this like genre of of movie news that I feel like we've gotten into of just like like what who why how yeah in what way oh please tell me your thoughts yeah i'm at a loss honestly um i did see i guess the best theory i have on this vertigo thing is what i saw somebody else saying that actually stephen knight is like doing the heroic thing of just making a he's basically going to do what gus van sant did when he remade psycho and just do a shot for shot remake of vertigo so that nobody else like can ever remake it really um sure because it will have already been yeah. done basically recently which yeah. if that's what he's doing then i guess more respect to him uh if he's doing anything else i question the purpose of this because, well that, that's uh, actually what the reason that disney wanted to do the live action remix of their animated movies too scott is they didn't want anyone else remaking them I, that's what i heard yeah. they're they doing sure. as well yeah. sure <laughs> i mean you know, again, the joke is, well, why would they make this? Uh, oh, well, obviously it's so that they could make Vertigo better, um, which is, you know, kind of a, a funny idea. I mean, Vertigo is not even one of my uh, favorite Hitchcock movies necessarily, but like it's an incredible film. It was number one in the sight and sound poll until this most recent year uh, when Gene Dillman took over. Um, and certainly i do not think that if anyone was ever to remake it and do it successfully certainly i do not think that stephen knight and robert downey jr are the people who are going to do that like again loved what robert downey jr did in the iron man stuff but i uh i don't know that i can see him playing like the psychologically tortured character that uh james stewart plays in vertigo um so yeah i i really just have to throw my hands up at this and say is nothing sacred because that is kind of the the reaction my first reaction when i see something like this it is it is almost like a mad libs it's like one of those yeah twitter bots that just like pitches movies like every 30 minutes or whatever just spits out a mad lib movie pitch yeah uh, that's an interesting way to put it I, I mean they did this with rebecca and netflix did a couple of years ago it was not very good i don't know when we'll learn our lesson about this like they 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 haven't explicitly remade rear window but they also like kind of have remade rear window i feel like a couple times i don't know i, I guess when you just have these iconic movies you just got to cash in on the ip i don't know i'm it's i'm not i'm not disturbia. at a loss it's just this just Sad. At least Disturbia is like kind of fun. Like, you know, if if you're gonna do a remake, I mean, Brian De Palma, like half of his early movies are just remakes of Hitchcock movies, but like he does his own thing with them. It is not sure. just yeah. they're not literally remakes. Like uh Dress to Kill is not literally a remake of Psycho, even though it, it is obviously heavily inspired by Psycho. Um 
these, these days though like if you're gonna basically remake psycho you should like the the perspective would be you should just call it psycho and, and yeah, coast off of the right. brand off of the brand exactly. of psycho i mean that's obviously what they're trying to do here. but by that logic though scott like should they be remaking vertigo but like setting it in 2023 instead of 1950 and giving a modern like a, a different take like was is would you be more okay like i understand the use of the name there there is an issue with that i, I get that but like is that better than than them trying to like redo what alfred hitchcock did with robert downey jr like i guess that's my question because it feels like yeah i mean i'm just going to give you the law school answer of it depends because sure um uh-huh. I, you know i think it just depends on a lot of things. again the palma was able with dressed to kill for example and to come back to that example like he was able to do so many things that hitchcock was not able to because of you know the time period and sure. what you could actually put in movies and you know like the there's a major character in dressed to kill who is basically transgender um mm-hmm. so he's exploring all kinds of ideas that like you know you you don't or you weren't exploring um back then he's making a more lurid film than hitchcock makes so that's his angle on it right what is the angle going to be here i don't know but i don't know if stephen knight again and robert downey jr are the people that i trust to come up with some sort of angle on it like that like they're going to need to find a director you know stephen knight his last film he did with spencer which he wrote he he worked with pablo lorraine and i thought pablo lorraine's direction was actually wonderful in that movie uh the script was the, the letdown part Maybe if he can find somebody who, you know, is a stylist that can really put their stamp on it to direct this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a complete waste of time, but I just, I don't see a world where we don't come away from this being like, why? Who would you want to direct it? Brian De Palma's still alive. <laughs> I don't think he really ever made a, a Vertigo-esque film, so uh, maybe maybe this is his time. I mean... The truth is, saw, we don't get actually, that many. We don't get that many heavily, like yeah. pulpy noir films anymore. Which I know is not exactly what Vertigo is, but it's that flavor in that era. There's not many directors making movies like that. I mean, Fincher. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, I, uh, yeah. I mean, that would be a great option. Like, a hundred percent. Like, that is true. I would have to think on it more. Uh, somebody else said this too, which I agree with. Actually, actually, I think Sam Van Hallgren said this, but um. They already did a Vertigo remake, which was Christian Petzold's Phoenix, uh, which from 2014, which is now one of my top 100 movies. So, um, again, is Vertigo in your top 100? It's a riff on Vertigo without being Vertigo. Uh, No, it's not. But again, I fully acknowledge that Hitchcock. (laughs) I fully acknowledge that Vertigo is a masterpiece and, and one of the more influential films probably ever. All right, well, more on that, I'm sure, in the next few years. We'll see if it gets off the ground and is made. It probably will. Robert Downey Jr. is a pretty big name. Stephen Knight is a notable writer. He has a lot of pretty big credits to his name at this point, and it wouldn't surprise me if a pretty big director got attached as well. Anyway, the other piece of news, Scott, I'll I'll turn things over to you to kick things off here because it's some pretty unpleasant stuff that happened over the weekend and is probably still... uh, happening live to an extent because we're recording here on monday night we obviously got some more statements and information today um after the weekend and there's probably more to come over the coming days but why don't you tell us about the situation involving jonathan majors 
Yeah. So again, we've talked a lot about Jonathan Majors here recently. He was in um, two significant films with Creed Three and Ant Man and the Wasp. Wasp Quantumania. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know those franchises seem to have staked a lot on him, and uh, I'm not sure what sort of return on investment they're going to get. And given the latest news, which has come out, which is that he was actually arrested um, in New York City for assault by strangulation of a, of a female victim. Um, and he has now, you know, he's, of course, his, his team of lawyers have come out and responded to what happened saying, this is all a farce. Um, we have evidence that shows that he is not guilty. The witnesses already recanted her, her statement. Um, you know, the, the, the traditional stuff that, that lawyers are going to say in these situations and also, the narrative that they're going to, they're already like instituting the narrative that they're going to try to institute given what happened recently with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard stuff becoming such a embarrassing media circus. Um, and since this news has come out, you know, uh, we, we at least got a, a Twitter user who we both follow, like kind of got caught in the crossfire on this. Yeah. I came um, onto this Twitter user. I feel like back in November timeframe before they'd gotten big and i was like i you know i'm really enjoying following this person you should follow them too it's one of the few people i've turned you on to i feel like on twitter yeah um and i have to say i'm not like a huge fan of every one of their takes but again it's an interesting person to follow like they are always commenting on topics that i'm interested in but their name is ab allen uh, from what i understand they're like somebody who has worked like crew on some films like they've been like an assistant director and stuff on a yeah. few films and assistant director and um a, there's another role like assistant dp as well they've done a couple different things it sounds like in the business yeah. and still working but, today like he's an like they are an active uh um filmmaker in that right not directing films yeah. themselves but is work are working in the business basically like a film twitter person um <laughs> sure. nowadays but tweeted some some weeks ago that you know basically the tweet was something to the effect of oh there's an actor right now that everyone in on film twitter and and in Hollywood or wherever is in love with um, and is getting a lot of buzz. But I happen to know that this person is a cruel and abusive like person, both professionally and personally. Um, didn't and say anything since, more. And than they've that. since clarified that when they were referring to it, that was primarily verbal and emotional, not physical. Like they'd, they'd yeah, never heard right. anything about this person, you know, nudge nudge wink wink jonathan majors now what never had never had known them to be physically abusive before well yes and somebody you know pretty much immediately after the jonathan majors story broke you know went back and found that ab allen tweet and was like oh well now we know who it is and ab allen responded and was like ding 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 right like so confirming that they were indeed talking about jonathan majors um and, you know, again, as they said, maybe they didn't hear anything physically about anything physically, but the two things are often connected. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's not a stretch to say that um, someone who is verbally and emotionally abusive is probably, you know, it, it oftentimes is only a step away from also being physical with that. But um, but yes, yeah, so. Obviously, yeah, you know, it, it feels weird to talk about like what the implications are for this in the film landscape, right, Scott? Because you're talking about a woman was assaulted, right? Like that is the most important part of the story. That is the most concerning part of the story. 
Mm-hmm. What happens with Jonathan Major's career here, you know, after this is definitely a secondary concern to the welfare and well-being of the victim. So I feel like that needs to be said because obviously immediately the stories were like, what does this mean for the Kang dynasty and what's next for the MCU or whatever? Which like, all right, read the room a little bit. Like, I understand we have to talk about this, but um, I, I guess, Scott, you know, again, from our perspective, we it's it's of interest to us, that aspect of it. So what do you think this means? Do you think there will be any repercussions? I mean, let's say that nothing else really comes of this, right? Let's just say that, you know, we had the arrest, we had this initial firestorm and it all just sort of blows over. He doesn't get charged. There's no trial. He doesn't get convicted of anything. You know, what do you think these, you know, Creed maybe to a lesser extent, we don't really know where Creed's going from here. It'd be very easy to not ever have him in another Creed property again, I think is what you're trying to say. And I agree with that. It would not be easy at all to not have him in the MCU anymore because, you know, their next Avengers like film is Avengers Kang Dynasty. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, and he is Kang. So, um, what's your, what's your take on all this? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel bad for the people at a Marvel risk management right now whoever is whoever is responsible for for navigating I mean, those situations on that note what what do you say what do you say to the people who think who would say well look you know you now have stories it's not just this one incident you now have stories coming out of he was you know he was abusive to people presumably on set of movies and that's how ab yeah. allen was familiar with it what do you what would you say to the people who would say well this is on marvel for not vetting their their people properly yeah i i I mean, it's so tricky, right? Because like, there's so many, I I don't mean to equate different, um, maybe deplorable actions, because physical abuse is different from politics, which is different from other types of, you know, distasteful activity that you can that you can do at the same. So it's not like Marvel is, is immune or has not experienced in the past behavior that is a bit I one might call isolating um, or antagonistic to the audience. But it is a different flavor, I think, when you when you weigh it in so far as to have someone who's been. Although, yeah, I mean, he has been arrested. It's not even not even temporary. Like he has been arrested. He's been arraigned. He's out on bail right now, I believe. is my, I, I, That's my understanding, at least there. He does have charges against him. Um, alleged, I mean, yeah, alleged... that's usually how that works. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I'm saying it's and those charges may be dropped. I mean, by the time this podcast releases, those charges may be dropped. It's entirely possible. It's but... a, and I I should say this is actually something I can offer perspective on because yeah. I do deal with these sorts of cases um, in my own line of work. I mean, again, we're talking about California. We're talking about New York here, so um, yeah, I don't know exactly what the policy is up there. But for example, I have had domestic violence cases where the victim has come forward and said, I don't want to go forward with this anymore. I am recanting. And the DA has said, looked at the facts and looked at the evidence and said, well, that's too bad. We have a case. We're going to put you on the stand and you're going to have to testify about what you told the officer, you know, when this all happened, what you told, you know, the officers afterwards or whatever. So ultimately I think, you know, in any state or whatever, the, the district attorney is who decides obviously whether the case proceeds or not. And so, you know, his lawyers are saying, well, the victims recanted or whatever. 
that doesn't always mean that the case is going away or that the victim is is going away. Like the, the yeah. DA is going to evaluate the strength of their case. Yeah, and I think in a state and a city like New York, I mean, I think this is technically in Brooklyn, although I don't know exactly where he was arrested, whether it was Manhattan or Brooklyn. They're different counties. There's different different dynamics involved, I think, in those different places. But, you know, th- these are district attorneys who are not afraid um, and sometimes even seek out headlines in the cases that they're doing. And so I don't think that they would shy away from putting a massive film star on trial if they thought they had a chance of of winning the case. I mean, just look, you don't have to look very far for everything going on right now with Trump and will he the will he won't he of being arrested by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Yeah. So I don't think they're necessarily afraid of that. What the consequences are of it in the industry. I mean, I, I, I do think rightly or wrongly that if he if the charges get dropped and you don't hear too much more about what's going on, I don't I don't see a world in which Marvel drops him as Kang. And I think that his films are out. I don't even know if he has more. Pro- I mean, he has magazine dreams, I guess, coming out later this year, a much smaller project, less lower profile for sure. Unless, of course, he gets Oscars buzz. I was going to say, but Oscar potential, possibly. Yeah, maybe. It is a searchlight film, I believe. I can already foresee the the firestorm of next year for the Oscars being, yeah, you know, this. Yeah, I just I have a hard time. I mean, the arm. So there was a super controversial, and I guess not controversial. It's not controversial, but like he he did an army recruitment commercial, and the army like dropped, like took it off air like asap as soon as he was arrested, which actually that was an interesting move. If the um, army is 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 disagreeing with it, then uh, that's probably not a good sign for him. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, granted, they could start showing that commercial again anytime they want to. They can put it back out there. They just pulled it off of air. Yeah. Tempor- I mean, potentially temporarily. But it feels like one of those things where it's going to be more. You're going to he's probably going to have lower profile roles. The truth is, like, people aren't going to want to work with him. Studios are going to be a little bit nervous for a little while about it. But also the King Dynasty movies, they're like two or three years from now, Scott. Like those movies are only like 2025, 2026. Like so much could happen between now and then, right? Like that's a lot of time for the news cycle to repeat and heal and do over again, you know, rightly or wrongly. I think that it's going to be a temporary hit and headwind to his career for sure. But I'm not sure, like without knowing what what comes of the actual case itself that, you know, at hand. I'm not sure what the long-term consequences are. Like people have gotten away with and continue to work having done much, like frankly, worse stuff than this. Um, I mean, Harvey Weinstein made movies for decades, having sexually assaulted half the people that he seemed to have worked with. You just so, mentioned Mel Gibson is going to, I mean, Mel Gibson hasn't done anything on the level, I guess, of not that yeah, I mean, Mel, Mel Gibson hasn't worked with a major studio. Um, well, he's going to be in this John Wick thing, but but um, I mean, Lionsgate is not even like a tier one studio. I mean, that's yeah, that's fair, it, but not that we need to get into the sport again of comparison, comparing people's deplorable actions to each other. But, but that's fair. I mean, Johnny Depp physically like, ass- assaulted anyone that I know of. Yeah, I mean, ver- yeah, verbally abusive to the point of almost physical assault, but that's neither yes. here nor there. Um, yeah, I mean, the closest comp is probably Johnny Depp. Honestly, we were talking yeah. about this earlier today. Obviously, the other side of that coin in that situation is another famous actress. So that makes the dynamic different than what we're talking about here. I'm not familiar with who the other person in the situation was. I assume this person's not a famous actress. 
and that obviously creates a pretty significant power dynamic um and insulating jonathan majors probably from larger repercussions in the industry but johnny depp i mean since since all that happened he hasn't worked with a major film studio on any project and frankly i'll be surprised if he ever does again like yes he's in movies that he's like independently financing and working with like just like crazy people in europe or whatever to make films that i've heard about but like is he ever going to work with one of the major studios in hollywood again probably not and i i think that's one end of the spectrum I don't think Jonathan Majors is there yet unless more stuff comes out. And look, it's early. By the time this podcast releases, more stuff very well might have come out. It could have gotten a lot worse. It could have gotten a lot better between now and then. Like things can have, could have evolved and changed from the perspective of Jonathan Majors quite considerably um, just in the next few days. But barring things getting significantly worse, I'm not sure what real I'm not sure if there's significant long term consequences for his career yet. And that's like a little, I don't know. And I can't even, I'm not even quite sure how to feel about that, right? Like that feels disappointing to me, but at the same time, like should someone's career be forever ruined because they, you know, had a minor assault charge against them? Like maybe, I don't know the answer to that question. Ezra I feel, Miller. I feel, I mean. But Ezra Miller's, yeah, a bit different. their allegations I mean, go go much deeper than that. Much deeper and frankly, like much, much I mean, hold equally up if not more concerning. With like a 16 year old or something. Yeah. yeah. Like kidnapped someone, stole some, stole some stuff from other people. That's just like crazy stuff that I don't fully understand. But Scott, I think I mean, it's interesting to highlight because Ezra Miller, of course, you know, being gender fluid is is a form of of minority, and that is something that comes up in the news when Ezra Miller is, is talked about. But Jonathan Major situation, being black, I don't think it's it's a coincidence that being black. Um, plays a role in, in the way this is sort of going through the media cycle. Ezra Miller simply just has not had the same level of heat put on them for relatively similar stuff that's happened. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't mean, mean, again, I don't really mean to compare either, but I, it, it's, I, I, it's not something I haven't noticed, I guess is what I mean to say. The questions you're asking here do not really have any good answers. No, it's uh, super unsatisfying. Easy answers, at least. Uh, yeah. I, I think, you know, again, at this point, you are not a bad person necessarily for thinking that there needs to be more to come out before, you know, this guy has his career ruined, as you put it, Scott. You're also certainly not a bad person if you think, hey, I, you know, I 100% believe the allegations, yeah. like, he he's done. He never needs to work in Hollywood again. Like, there is, there is nuance at this point in the the debate i think um yeah now what will what will come out in the you know the coming weeks and months uh, will be more telling perhaps but yeah. it, it is, doesn't seem good though whatever it is it doesn't, it doesn't seem, seem good. good at all like it, it doesn't seem good at all and you know again especially nowadays the question you have to keep coming back to them. like look at what amber heard had to endure for coming out and saying what she said yeah. why would anyone why would anyone in this woman's position want to yep. you know pursue charges against somebody as famous as jonathan majors unless they were they were true and you know she wants to see him brought to justice like because she has nothing to gain from the situation certainly she has nothing to gain yeah she's not going to gain any clout by no. doing it that's for sure i mean amber heard look have your opinions of what you will about the amber heard johnny depp situation i'm not interested at all in discussing discussing Me that either. it just i'm so so not interested in it but 
whether you believe she did anything wrong or not, she's also probably never working with a major Hollywood studio. She's just too toxic of a talent now because of everything that happened. Like, is there she has a better chance of working with a major studio again than Johnny Depp does, I'd say. But it's probably not going to be for a while, and it's probably not going to be in a major role in a in a major franchise. Um which you know, I don't feel strongly. I didn't hadn't have really any attachment to Amber Heard. It doesn't hurt my feelings that I won't see her in a in a big movie again, but that's also reality it's of the, the situation. That she of faced. Yeah. Exactly, a hundred percent, yeah. And you know, I don't know what to make of that. I feel conflicted. I guess is what I mean to say. And I think you're right, right for doing so. Great. Well, on that really joyful note, Scott, we should wrap up episode 229 of Some Like It, Scott. Any parting thoughts to leave us with today that are of the happier variety <laughs> than what we've been discussing? Uh, yeah, I know some people, uh, sports talk for a second, I know some people sure. are like bemoaning this Final Four, the fact that it's like no one, two, or three seeds made it. I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool that one of San Diego State or Florida Atlantic um, is going to play for the national championship. Um, that Miami has been able to go and Jim Laranega has been able to go on the run that they've gone on as a, you know, fan of a small mid-major school, the University of Tennessee. I'm kidding. But uh, as a fan of a small mid-major school, my <laughs> alma mater, Furman, who obviously made the tournament this year and won a game, uh, I am glad to see that mid-majors, you know, again, in the form of San Diego State and Florida Atlantic are getting the respect that they deserve. Florida Atlantic, you know, a team that really just came out of nowhere. They were picked to finish fifth in their conference. But San Diego State, like a real powerhouse for 20, 25 years, you know, first under Steve Fisher and now under Brian Dutcher. And they have – but they never made it to the Elite Eight before. Like it's it's cool to see them finally getting what they, you know, have deserved, I think, which is a spot in the Final Four. And, um, yeah, I mean – I don't want UConn to win, not because I dislike them, but just because they have won, you know, multiple titles in the last 20, yeah. 25 years. Uh, none of these other teams have even come close to sniffing a title before. So I would like to see some chaos. It's certainly been a chaotic tournament thus far, but it's been a lot of fun too. Yeah. You know, underdog stories aside and, and, and whatnot, I'm sure the people at CBS and at Turner um, are furious, frankly. That they have that's fine. Pretty much no major team. It's UConn is on the bubble of what's a major team and what's not a major team, probably. Um, Miami as well, maybe in the final four. It's called March Madness for a reason. I mean, Miami's definitely much more of a football school. So um even even though they the made football the team has last been, year. Well, that's what I'm saying. Even though their football team hasn't been good in years, and their basketball team has been very, very good since Jim Laranega has been the coach, but um yeah, you're probably still right. But I mean, the thing is, you know, again, you can you can laugh at it and say, oh, a five seed San Diego State, a nine seed Florida Atlanta. These teams are good. Like if you actually watch watch them playing, there is no denying these these yeah. teams are very good. I mean, San Diego State just took down Alabama, who was the best overall team in college basketball for this entire season. Um, you know, Florida Atlantic beats Kansas a br- State. A Brandon Millerless Alabama, more or less, though. Well, he was, yeah, I mean, he was playing. Um, sure. Kansas State, a team that was on fire. They beat Tennessee, who had the number one defense. I mean, they, these teams are not, like, getting an easy route to the Final Four. They have earned sure. their way there, and they deserve respect, even I mean, though, you know, their na- names may not carry it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also it's also been one of those years, I feel like, since, I mean, almost since a few weeks into the regular season, where it felt like there wasn't really any true standout oh, yeah. head yeah. and shoulders above the rest teams in college <laughs> basketball that sort of opened the door for these potential circumstances to happen. And lo and behold, they did happen, which, I, I mean, I think that's cool. I'm I'm with you on that. And it's funny that it really did feel that way. I mean, the number of times a number one, you know, the number one ranked team in the country lost this year or a top five team in the country lost this year felt like that was a very large number. I don't I don't have the comparison yeah. to past years, and, but it seems significant. And even after all the early upsets happened, it did seem like we were still, you know, moving towards Alabama versus Houston. Right. Even even despite all the upsets, we're still going to end up with the two best teams. Didn't work out that way, and I'm I'm not sorry about it. The games have still been really good. I mean, you know, the this past weekend it seemed like, except for the games where UConn just destroyed teams, it felt like every single game was coming down to the end. Totally. Also, on the women's side, um, also having been enjoying watching the women's tournament, uh, and I'm very excited. Let me confirm. I'm sure South Carolina won. Yes, they did. Uh, South Carolina, Iowa next weekend in the final four is going to be perhaps the game of the year in men's or women's college basketball, because you have the insanely dominant South Carolina team that has not been tested at all this season undefeated. And they're going to go up against the most electric player in men's or women's college basketball and Caitlin Clark for Iowa. So I'm telling you, you may not care about women's basketball. You may not watch women's basketball. You're going to want to watch that game because it's going to be a thriller. Yeah. Well, thank you for cheering us up here at the end of episode 229, Scott. I think everyone who's still listening at this point uh, needed that. But at the end of the day, probably no one's listening at this point. So it's fine. Yeah. Any, where can people find you on social media, Scott? At Scarby Dent. And I am at Shelton 2013 on Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialized, everywhere else over there. Don't forget to check out our podcast as well at Patreon at www.patreon.com slash pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate it. But if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. Scott, I don't think we've actually talked about this on the main podcast yet, and it still is a, you know, a few weeks off from starting, but we have the Anderson Countdown starting soon. In like two, three weeks from when this episode is released, we are reviewing all of the Wes Anderson films leading up toward Asteroid City coming out uh, late June, I believe that is. So keep an eye out for those in the feed. We start with Bottle Rocket and we're going all the way through uh, the film we reviewed on the podcast just a couple of years ago. The French Dispatch. Scott is a huge fan of that movie. I'm excited to revisit it as well. Um, I will say that's also one thing separate from this, Scott, that I've really started to appreciate having done this podcast now for over five years is we're getting like sequels and and second and third movies from directors that we've reviewed their other films on the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, that I think that's cool. I mean, we, we've been doing this a long yeah. time now, so it's natural that this would happen. But the fact that we've now we're reviewing sequels of films we talked about on the podcast, it's going to keep happening more and more getting second and third films from directors. We've done countdown series for like we're getting another Christopher Nolan film later this year you know we're getting a fincher film again later this year voice crack um, it's leaving me my body is is giving up on me at this point i think Scott, it's time to end it yeah an hour and 50 in i think that's really awesome um but keep an eye out for wes I anderson agree. wes anderson in the feed and maybe we'll even have another countdown series cooked up later on this year as well we'll see if we if we do follow through on that but i think things are looking pretty good for it right now 
So stay tuned for that. We really appreciate, really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about John Wick Chapter 4. They did it. Absolute maniacs. We'll be back next week with a review of the fantasy epic Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. We hope you'll join us for that next week. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.